Hi, I want to welcome everyone to the RRUMC podcast. Um, and we're just, we're going to be continuing our series on tough questions. And uh, I just want to thank everyone for the feedback we've been receiving from these um, these podcasts and answering these questions. And um, it's really encouraging from us to hear from you. And we appreciate that so much. Um, so today's is going to be maybe slightly different than we had in the past couple of uh, podcasts when it came to tough questions. We're actually going to be answering three questions each. So we're going to spending maybe not as long on each question as we would had before, but we're doing this because we want to um, just answer more tough questions and having giving you um, answers to questions that perhaps you have and and answering more questions can give you um, just that little bit more understanding. And of course, um, Paul and I have also have said that if you have any tough questions, please send it our way and we'd be happy to answer them um, for you and um, just give you a biblical perspective. So um, we're going to start off with Paul's first question um, for today's podcast. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, greetings all. Uh, just uh, excited to continue this process with you. This has been a fun series for us. And uh, just our underlying goal in, in all of this, one, is uh, to, to educate ourselves. Um, uh, trust me, Stephen and I have done a lot of that in uh, researching the answers uh, to these questions. This isn't stuff we're just uh, pulling out of our brains uh, on the spot. So we've, we've put some work in the, in the background to... Uh, research some of this stuff and uh, be able to share these responses with you. Uh, so to educate ourselves, but also to be better equipped to uh, educate those around us and have opportunity to respond to those who are skeptical about our faith or, or just have uh, nagging questions they've never gotten answers to. Maybe they had a, a bad experience with a, a church or, or a, a Christian that they encountered. Um, so these are opportunities to address uh, some of the skepticism and, and uh, maybe doubts or frustrations that other people have, knowing that you know, we're not going to uh, necessarily be able to use just logic and reasoning uh, to, to engage people and, and uh, change their hearts. Uh, but this is very often a piece of the puzzle in helping people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So uh, let us uh, dive right in with, with question number one. I think it's a, a good foundational place to start, uh, and it's simply this. What proof do we have that Jesus was even a real historical person? Uh, we're going to be digging further into the character of the person of Jesus uh, today beyond this, but I think this is a good starting point. Uh, so the reality is things would be a great deal easier for skeptics of Christianity if they could simply prove that, that Jesus never existed, right? I mean, debating about whether... He came from God, he, he worked miracles, he died on a cross, uh, was resurrected. All of that goes away if you can prove the whole thing is just a, a complete fake. So I think it's important for us as Christians to be able to establish Jesus uh, at the very least as a historical figure so as to not let uh, skeptics off the hook um, as far as uh, accepting that, that Jesus was uh, real and then, and then needing then to go on beyond that to wrestle with uh, not just whether he was, but who he was uh, in different aspects of his life and his ministry. Uh, so at the very least, we need to establish he was a real historical person. Uh, many people will not want to hear evidence of, of Jesus' existence from the Bible, uh, would not want us to use the Bible to, to prove his existence because they have their own doubts about the Bible itself. 
but I think it's important as we look to the Bible for some evidence uh, in this regard that we remember the Bible isn't just one big book written by one person, right, who may or may not have been lying about the whole thing. We can't write off the Bible as saying, uh, you know, if the, if, uh, the, the author of the Bible was uh, corrupt or, or uh, just incompetent, then the whole Bible is a sham. We can't say that because the Bible is a collection of many separate documents written by many different authors. In fact, the New Testament alone contains 27 books, all written within 70 years of Jesus's life uh, by about 10 different authors, and all of them attest in some way or another to Jesus being a real historical figure. Many of these authors were direct witnesses uh, to Jesus. They knew Jesus personally. Uh, the Apostle John, writing on behalf of all New Testament authors, begins his first letter this way. He says this, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, by we he means uh, him and his fellow apostles, uh, biblical authors included, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So the, the Bible speaks to, uh, with, with many different authors and, and many different texts and, and contexts, uh, Jesus being a real historical person. Of course, if you want extra biblical evidence to the existence of Jesus, you won't be disappointed. Uh, a man named Flavius Josephus, a, a Jew who served uh, primarily as a Jewish historian for his era uh, of history, recorded these words. I think this is powerful, knowing that this uh, man was not uh, overtly Christian, didn't profess a, a belief or a faith in Jesus, yet he says this nonetheless. He says, there was about this time in one of his historical texts, uh, he says, about this time, a man named Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure, he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. So Josephus speaks plainly, not just of Jesus, but of these miraculous events of his life, his death, his resurrection. Another man, Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, uh, writes about the reign of Nero as a historian. In the uh, early second century, he refers to the presence of Christians in Rome, speaks about their Messiah, a man named Jesus. Another Roman historian from the same time period, Suetonius, uh, references Jesus twice in his works as a real historical person. And another reference exists in, in the writings of a man named Pliny the Younger. Uh, these are just a few of the, uh, of the secular writings that reference Jesus as a real person. In fact, there's such a, a chorus of voices recorded throughout history that speak to the existence of Jesus that we, we know more about Jesus' birth and life and death than any other person from his period in history and probably hundreds of years after. Uh, so it's incredibly difficult, almost absurd, to try to make a, a sound argument that Jesus never existed as a historical person. Uh, I'll leave you with this author, Roderick Dunkerley, says it this way, uh, in his book, Beyond the Gospels, he writes, Indeed, it has been argued, and I think very rightly, that myth theories of the beginnings of Christianity are modern speculative hypotheses motivated by 
unreasoning prejudice and dislike. It would never enter anyone's head to ask whether Jesus had lived unless, before asking the question, the mind had been darkened by the wish that he had not lived. So basically, you're only going to doubt Jesus' life uh, based on your desire to doubt his life, not based on any evidence that is or isn't available to you. Uh, and, and Stephen is going to build on this question with one uh, somewhat linked, and let's uh, let him take it away with question number two. Yeah, so um, once we get past um, that concern, it was Jesus real, and, and you get, as what Paul is sharing, this, this really um, factual evidence um, of Jesus's existence, and, and, we, and we settle that question that Jesus did exist, Jesus was a real man who, who lived, um, grew up in Nazareth, who lived um, in Israel, and you can, and Paul's been to Israel, and you, so you can walk the steps that he walked. So once you get past that, you get to another question that some people have that critics may have is that, did Jesus really claim to be God? And, and maybe some of you out there I know the answer to this and say yes, of course, but this is still a, a, a pretty um, a question that is definitely out there in circulation where people ask, did Jesus really claim to be God? And, and I want to give these verses um, and to speak about this so that it can be helpful for you um, when you're confronted with this question. Um, so yes, there are several passages where Jesus is clearly claiming to be God. Um, but I will point to two specific, two specific passages in John. Um, so in John 30, John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And he says, and we need only the reaction of the Jews to his statement to know that he is claiming to be God. So the Jews, they, they tried to stone him for this very reason. The Jews said, you are our mere man claiming to be God. So the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was claiming, that he was claiming deity. So the Jews, and and, and the punishment for that is stoning. So the Jews have a real understanding that when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that's essentially Jesus saying in the 21st century, Jesus saying, I am God. And, and the Jews, the reaction to that is like, hey, this Jesus, you know you're a mere man and you're claiming to be God. And, and you can imagine the Jews to this day, and especially then, but to this day, Jews hold their religion very close to them. And, and, and for a man to claim to be God was idolatrous. It was blasphemy. And, and they were ready to deal with that issue right there and then. And they understand the, they understood the magnitude of Jesus' words when he said, I and the Father are one. Um, and, and the punishment for blasphemy was stoning. So that, that was what they were about to do. Um, so what Jesus, when he was saying that, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he's, he's essentially saying he and the Father are one in nature and essence. And the next passage is John chapter 8, verse 58. It's another example of Jesus declaring to be God. So Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 58, it says, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if you remember, if you read through the scriptures and, and you hear that I am statement, 
Um, Jesus actually says this. This is maybe just a little bit of a side note, but Jesus actually says, I am, I think it's six or seven times in the Gospel of John where it says like, I am the vine or I am the bread of life or I am the light. These are all references to this Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 where God, where Moses meets God in the burning bush and then uh, Moses um, is speaking to God and, and, and he says, who, who, what's your name? How do I, what do I say to the people? And God says, I am who, God says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. So when Jesus says, I am, he's referring all the way back to this pivotal moment in Jewish history of Moses talking to the burning bushes. Probably one of, it's one of the most vivid, vivid um, moments in all of scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Um, where God is speaking to Moses and God says, I am. And Jesus is referring back to that when he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, he says, I am. And the Jews took a massive offense to this as well, as you can imagine, that Jesus is equating himself to the Old Testament God when he says, I am. And the Jews who heard the statement responded by picking up stones to kill him for blasphemy as was, again, the Mosaic law commanded for the punishment of blasphemy. Um, So when someone asks you the question, did Jesus claim to be God? Yes, very, very clearly Jesus claimed to be God. And and the Jews of that time understood the magnitude of Jesus' words. And really, at that time, to the Jews, the offense of Jesus' words um, and, and, and their response to that. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, we got Paul mentions this, the significance of the facts of Jesus' existence. And, and then also we have to deal with the words of Jesus. So not only did Jesus exist, but Jesus also spoke in such a profound way that he claimed to be God. And, and what's also important about this is that no other religious leader in any, in any of the major religions or any religion do you have a founder who said, I am God. <laughs> Only Jesus is making such a bold claim to say that he is God. Um, so, so that's very important um, to know. In those two verses, John chapter 10, verse 30, and, and then John chapter 8, verse um, 58, are, are references you could go to uh, if someone asks you, did Jesus ever claim to be God? So if you're going to make the claim to be God, you better be ready to back it up, <laughs> right. right? That is right, um, exactly. So, the, you know, the the interesting part about Jesus during his ministry, and I know the math doesn't add up, but, you know, theologians understand it this way, that Jesus was both 100% human and 100% divine, which means he was all of both all the time, and what he revealed to the people was exactly what he intended to reveal to the people. In, in moments, he wanted... Uh, to be completely and utterly human so that he could connect with us on a human level. Uh, And at times he needed to reveal uh, his divinity in in different moments uh, so that people could see the the power and the glory of God working through him. And uh, if Jesus had chose uh, to be completely divine, even in a human flesh, uh, every single thing he said and, and did throughout his ministry would have just uh, been soaked with evidence of his divinity. Um, but he chose to, to reveal himself as, as human um, as well. We move to the next question, which uh, once again connects to Jesus' divinity and evidence of his divinity. 
and it's specific to his resurrection. So one of these moments when Jesus wanted to reveal his power, his divinity, was through the resurrection. Uh, what evidence do we have that this actually took place, that Jesus was actually raised from the dead? So that's question number three for today. Uh, for this, I, I pulled information from a few sources, just to, to be fair to those sources. First uh, one is Josh McDowell's book, Answers to Tough Questions uh, Skeptics Ask About the Christian Faith, um, as well as Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ, uh, both great reads if you want to dig further into this and many other topics. Uh, but my goal is, is really to pelt you with as much evidence for the resurrection in the next couple of minutes as possible without going ter terribly deep in, into any of these specific areas. Uh, so that's what I'm, I'm going to try to accomplish. First of all, the account of the resurrection is recorded by multiple witnesses who saw Jesus alive in the 40 days he spent on earth before returning to the Father. So Jesus wasn't just resurrected and, and poof into the clouds, right? So we have 40 days of him on earth, and much of the evidence of his resurrection comes from people's encounters with him during that 40 days. According to the Apostle Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians uh, 25 years later, he tells us that most of the 500-plus witnesses to the resurrected Jesus during those 40 days were still alive those 25 years later. Uh, Paul would not have said that in his letter to the Corinthians if it weren't true, because you're not going to tell people that there's you know 400 people out there that saw Jesus if there weren't actually 400 people that could attest to seeing Jesus. Paul would have been completely discredited and ridiculed. Uh, it would have been proven easily that he it was a, a complete and utter lie. Um, so Paul would not have said that in 1 Corinthians if it wasn't true. Now, Paul wasn't there at the resurrection. Uh, neither was Mark, who was uh, many believed to be the first gospel writer uh, to record the, the information about the resurrection. So one theory that skeptics have come up with is, is that maybe uh, the resurrection didn't happen, but it was a legend that developed over the years uh, that, that people just kind of uh, exaggerated reality or, or falsified uh, information to turn this into some sort of a, a legend like uh, the Paul Bunyan or uh, you know John Henry of, of uh, our culture. Uh, but 25 years is not long enough to develop a legend, right? People are, are still alive. Uh, Paul tells us that could quickly discredit this uh, if it were indeed a legend and proclaim it to be false. Uh, Paul even encouraged his readers in his letters to go find one of those remaining personal witnesses to the resurrection and hear for themselves from that person the testimony of the event because Paul was not there. He couldn't speak to it himself. But he said to his readers, go talk to one of these people that saw Jesus alive in those 40 days. Paul would not have said that if it, if it were not true. And not, not only that, if you want to believe that, uh, if you want people to believe, if you're sharing the story of the resurrection, you want people to buy it, to believe it, in this patriarchal society, you wouldn't create a story uh, in which the first witnesses to a resurrected Jesus were women. Uh, sadly, people would have doubted their credibility from the beginning because women were not, uh, were not received with the same level of respect and uh, authority as men were at that time. So you would not invent a story uh, with several women encountering Christ first. Um, and if the resurrection were not true, once again, you would have to deal with this problem. That there's still a body, right? If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, there's still a body in that tomb. So what skeptics have come up with is this idea that his body was stolen. 
Uh, so who are the options? Who could have stolen Jesus' body in order to cover up the, the truth and, and introduce this story of uh, a resurrection, ultimately, that was fake? Uh, who could have stolen the body? First of all, uh, one option is the Romans. The Romans could have taken his body, but this makes no sense. All the Romans wanted was to keep the peace in the region. That, that was their entire role in this, uh, in this epic story, was they wanted things to stay status quo. So a story of this resurrected Messiah who the Romans had murdered, um, was, was not going to do anything to promote uh, peace and tranquility amongst uh, the people of Israel. They would not have stolen Jesus' body for any reason whatsoever. The Jews uh, were there. The Jews could have stolen his body, perhaps, but it was a, the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus dead more than anyone, Also, that his power and his influence wouldn't threaten their hold on the people. So, of course, they're not going to steal Jesus' body and, and start rumors of a resurrection because uh, that it does the opposite of what they want to accomplish. In fact, they were the ones who asked for guards to be stationed at the tomb so that nobody could get to his body to potentially steal it. So the Romans didn't do it. The Jews could not have stolen the body. Who does that leave? Well, it leaves Jesus' disciples. Maybe they stole the body. And uh, even though they truly had no opportunity, at least this one kind of makes sense in theory. The disciples might have wanted to steal the body to, to promote the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. Um, but the problem with this one is their behavior after the fact, the lives they go on to live, proves this to be impossible. You see, a, a, great, a, a fake resurrection would have been a nice swan song for the disciples, right? Jesus is raised from the dead, or at least people think he is. Uh, they were victorious. They can ride off into the sunset. Everybody uh, sees them as, as uh, wonderful and followers of this great Messiah who had overcome death. Uh, but inside, if that were the case, they would have known the resurrection was false. And so they would have been done with things. They would have known Jesus' body was, was dead in a grave in a tomb somewhere. They would have went back to their other jobs. But there's no way that's not what they did. What they did instead was they went out and started preaching the name of, of Jesus, resurrected, this Messiah, this Messiah who overcame death, overcame the cross. They went out and risked their lives, committed their entire lives to preaching the message of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. And ultimately, uh, nearly all of the, the disciples turned apostles ended up dying horrific deaths uh, to, to promote the name of Jesus and this message of the resurrection. They would not have given their lives for Jesus if Jesus was a dead body rotting in a tomb somewhere. It just doesn't make sense. So the behavior of the disciples proves, uh, once again, that the resurrection did occur. They risked their lives. They gave their lives for a resurrected Jesus, not a dead Jesus. Stephen, take us away with question number four. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, um, I always love studying questions or studying evidence about the resurrection because that really is the foundation of the faith. Uh, I think Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians that without the resurrection, our faith is dead. And it's like, why even be a Christian if there's no resurrection? So, so much weighs on the resurrection. So as we, in this podcast, first we've talked about the claim um, and we proved the evidence of the existence of Jesus. And then we talked about um, proving that Jesus did claim to be God. And then we also talked about that Jesus really rose from the dead. So this leaves the question that it presents us with all this evidence, and, and, it, and it leaves us the choice of, do we believe Jesus? Are we going to be a Christian? Are we going to repent of our sins, um, give our life to Jesus, and allow him to be the King and the Lord of our lives? And, and if we've done that, if we have 
if we have given our life to Jesus, we have placed our faith in him and, and we are followers of Jesus, if we have done that, um, one of the questions that comes up next is, why should Christians attend church? So say that you believe all these things and you become a Christian, and, and then you ask, why should I attend church? Or why should Christians attend church? And within Christianity, there has been somewhat of a rise of Christians um, not believing, uh, that, that don't believe going to church is necessary for a walk with Jesus. And, and a little caveat now, I mean, I know particularly in this time, the virus is um, present, so going to church is a little bit more of a risk. But um, but what I'll say is that you can still, what I'll get to is that, but you can still be the church from where you're at. So I'll get to that here. Um, but anyways, within Christianity, um, when even when churches are open, Christians believe they don't need to go to church to have, to have a walk with Jesus. Now, the truth is, yes, you can be saved without having, without having to go to church first or or you don't have to have a regular attendance at church to be saved. Uh, however, it is very important to know that Jesus didn't save us so that we could walk alone. Jesus saved us into the kingdom of God. Jesus saved us into the body of Christ. And Jesus saved us really into a gospel movement. So we, um, so the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Um, which means gathering. So the church is a gathering of Christians for the purpose of worship and serving Christ. So, and many of you have heard this before, that the church is not a building, the church is a people. Um, so what it means to go to church, it, it means to be going to a gathering of fellow believers, the body of Christ, what the body of Christ, what that means is that all believers coming together to represent Christ on earth. So really... Uh, we weren't saved to quote unquote go to church. We were saved to we were saved into the church. And again, that's important to, important to, to, to remember. We weren't saved to go to church. We were saved into the church. So the church is a part of what we when we make that confession to follow Jesus Christ, this is the church, that body of Christ, that family of believers, the children of God, we entered into that ecclesia, that gathering, that movement of people. We are now part of the people of God. So it's not about going to church, it's about now belonging to the church, the people. So the New Testament sees the church as the forming of a new people, as I just said, it, and it's similar to the Israelites in the Old Testament. So when, so when the apostles are writing this and they're, and they're understanding the church, they see it as a new people. Just like they saw the, people, the children of Israel in the Old Testament, the church is a new people. So Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, um, God came to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So you read that in Titus, it says God came to redeem us, um, to purify himself a people, a people, which would be the church. Um, second, or First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. So again, you get the image that, you are a chosen people and, and a holy nation. So it's a gathering of people. That's what the church is. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, 
encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So the goal and the purpose of the church is to, is to, is to encourage one another, build each other up, um, to continue to gather together. And this question of um, going to church, it, it's again, it's not new, and Scripture approaches this. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Encourage, uh, it says, um, do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is addressing this issue where it says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So there already was this feel of, I don't need to be a part of this church. I don't need to be a part of the people. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Yes, we come together to encourage one another and build one another up. And, and this is important. The church, again, this is, when it comes to church, we have to think of it in this image as well. That we go to church not because it's this ritual thing we have to do in order to save ourselves. We go to church because it's because we've been saved by Christ and we go to church to be with those who are like Christ and, and that we go to church not out of a right of duty, but out of love for Jesus. And that's really important. That that and, and I understand that sometimes going to church is really hard to do, and sometimes it feels like a duty. And to be honest, I mean, we all struggle with that. But the church is really meant to be a place where we go out of love for Jesus and a love for our fellow believers. So understanding church, that the church is a people, the people of God, the children of God, um, that once you become a Christian, you're not saved to go to church. We're saved to be to belong into the church. So our responsibilities as Christians include seeking out community, a community yeah. of believers, to experience relationship with Jesus Christ alongside others. Um, it also includes uh, sharing the message of Jesus Christ with those who have not yet encountered Jesus, haven't accepted Christ into their hearts. And one of the questions along uh, those lines that I've always wrestled with um, tremendously throughout my life is what happens to all the people who never hear about Jesus? And to be perfectly honest, I, I almost uh, avoided answering this question because I don't have uh, complete satisfaction in my own heart and mind as to um, the details of this. I have I have a piece about it, but I would love uh, to have a conversation, you know, with Jesus, if uh, we could all have one of those whenever we wanted it, um, you know, one that actually uh, felt satisfactory, the one of those in-person sit-downs uh, where we didn't have to try and discern exactly what he was trying to say. Uh, I would ask him this question and have a satisfactory answer, but uh, that's not where we're at. So we, we address the question honestly uh, right now uh, in the midst of our podcast, what happens to people who never hear about Jesus? Christianity, uh, based on our Bibles, clearly states Jesus is the only way to salvation. So what do we do with, with the folks uh, who don't have the opportunity uh, to say yes to Jesus, just aren't given the chance? <clears throat> First off, no, there's no way to cover this entirely with, with just the few minutes we have. You would definitely need somebody a lot smarter than me leading the way if we were really going to dig into this. So this is just a surface-level uh, examination, quick uh, jump skip uh, through the topic. Uh, once again, know this, this question has bothered me throughout my life, and even after years of struggling with it, I, I have found a piece about it, but know that my piece 
is only partially based on the evidence that I see in Scripture. Um, there are tough questions out there that there's not going to be a direct answer to in Scripture, and we can find things that point to it or, and help appease us to a point. Uh, for me, I have found some of those in Scripture about this. Part of it, uh, my piece, though, about it is just knowing the character of my God and uh, being able to rely on, through my relationship with Him, what I've learned to be His character and uh, the, the, the qualities and the principles uh, through which He operates as, as much as I possibly can as a human being. So <clears throat> um, no matter how we answer this question, though, with all that being said, it doesn't change the truth of the statement that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I think it's important to get that out there. Uh, if we decide that um, you know we're, we're going to approach this question with the possibility that people that don't uh, say yes to Jesus during their life or don't have the opportunity more so to say yes to Jesus don't get another shot at it or or um, or out of chances uh, they don't have a get out of jail free card um, we may not like that answer but uh, that doesn't change the the truth of what Scripture tells us that Jesus is the only way. It doesn't we can't go back and change that just because we don't like the the results on the other side. And Jesus clearly through throughout Scripture, uh, everything he does and says indicates that he is the only way, the only path to salvation. Doesn't change uh, no matter what we think or or uh, feel about what God or does or doesn't do. Because uh, many people ask this question as a way to kind of. Um, discredit God and his character? You know, what if God really would allow people uh, who never had an opportunity uh, to then suffer for all eternity for, for not having said yes to him? Uh, of course, people would pile on that and would, would be uh, defiling God's character left and right. Or, um, you know, people would use this as an opportunity to separate themselves from God and say, I don't want to have anything to do with a God who works that way. Um, that's a possibility. People feel that way, and uh, certainly with good reason. But no matter how we resolve this question, it doesn't change the truth about Jesus being the only way. Uh, to the question itself, though, um, the reality is, the reason we ask this question, billions of people have died throughout history without ever hearing the name of Jesus, much less having had a real opportunity to accept uh, Jesus. Whether they, they have lived places that haven't been uh, connected to a Christian missionary, uh, maybe, you know, sadly children who passed before they were old enough to truly accept Jesus into their hearts. Uh, of course, you can toss in anyone and everyone who ever lived uh, before Jesus was alive and on the earth, right? Uh, I would even argue that there are many people who have been exposed on some level to Christianity, but it hasn't really been an effective or meaningful witness such that um, they should be responsible for having said yes to Jesus uh, based on the, the encounter that they had. So what happens to these people? Um, God provided everything in the Bible that we need to accept Jesus into our hearts and to live a righteous life. Um, and, and all of that is evident in the Bible. Um, but some of the, the answers to these tough questions are missing because the Bible doesn't exist to satisfy all of our curiosities. It, it is to meet our needs. Uh, so some of the passages that we can find that, that connect to this but don't directly address it. First off, uh, 2 Peter 3.9 is uh, just one of many passages in Scripture that teaches that God is patiently working to bring everyone 
in existence to acceptance of his love. So the first thing we need to establish is that God wants all of us uh, to be his children, to say yes to him, to live with him for all eternity. His desire is that not a single person would be lost. He could not emphasize this more than he does in scripture with all of the stories about the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. God will go to endless lengths uh, to draw every single person into relationship with him. Um, there is a, a passage in, in Romans uh, 1, uh, verses 18 to 20, that talks about how God's divine nature and power is uh, available and, and present with people, even if they don't have uh, direct conversation with somebody uh, who's a Christian or, or seeks to bring them into relationship with him. So we can walk out our, our front door and look around us and experience God. Uh, so God wants to be available to us and reveal himself to us in, in multiple ways. Um, the Apostle Paul in this passage from Romans says a lot of people try and hide from the truth about God that's evident all around them by kind of hiding, tucking behind their sin and the, their brokenness uh, because they don't want to be exposed to God. But God wants everyone to have every opportunity to accept him. So uh, just the beauty of creation or uh, the encounters that we have with other people, um, even if we haven't been directly introduced, formally introduced to God, we can experience the power of a creator and the love and the grace of a creator just by being exposed to things that we see around us in the world. Uh, scripture shows in, as well that God is going to get to us uh, as best he can, any way he can. If it's not through nature and, and exposure to these things, it's by sending uh, the church, sending people out to, to engage us. Uh, there's so many stories about this. One, uh, for example, Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10. Cornelius is a, a believer in God, uh, but had not really encountered Jesus, God sends Peter uh, directly to Cornelius's house and says, here's the deal, Cornelius, you've been seeking, uh, I have your answer. You know, so God does that very blatantly at times, connects us with the right people at the right times uh, to, to experience him. Um, so we know that our God, in summary, our God is a fair and just God. Uh, he, he wants everybody uh, to, to be in relationship with him. And... Um, once we understand that God's reality is uh, not always the same as our reality, we can't see things clearly. Uh, what God's understanding of fairness and, and justice is doesn't always match up with ours. Uh, but we know that God desires to be in relationship with us. And his judgment at the, at the end of the world is going to be fair and just. So you start piecing uh, these, these pieces of evidence together. You know, there's, there's nothing in Scripture that directly says uh, that people are going to have a second opportunity or he's going to make sure everybody has an opportunity. You piece together these, these elements of God's character and uh, I have a hard time believing uh, anything but that, that, that Christ is, is going to be um, presented to everybody. Everybody's going to have an opportunity, whether now or in the future, uh, to experience and accept him. A quick detour into Revelation as we wrap up another piece of evidence that supports this. The first seven verses of Revelation 20 points to uh, two distinct resurrections of the dead at the end times. Now, I'm not a, re uh, a Revelations guru, um, but to me, clearly, as I read this, I understand it, that the first resurrection of the dead is for people who had already accepted Jesus into their hearts. They're, they're referred to as saints. They're, they're brought back to life, um, and they ex encounter Jesus when he uh, descends from the clouds. You know, so the first resurrection is that. There's a, a period later, though, when there's a reference to a second resurrection. 
And my understanding is that this is the time when those who maybe missed an opportunity um, or weren't granted, more so weren't granted an opportunity in their life to experience Jesus, uh, they have that opportunity at the time of the second resurrection. So in summary, a lot of, uh, a lot of all over the place there. Um, and uh, the truth is the Bible is not clear on this. It doesn't satisfy our curiosities. Um, but all the evidence to me, when you pile it up, God's character, what we read in Scripture, points to the fact that God's grace abounds and uh, everybody in some way, shape, or form will be given an opportunity to experience Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior. And Stephen <laughs> is going to bring us home now with the doozy of a question. What do you got for us, Stephen? All right. So um, if you have listened this far, kudos to you. Thank you so much. You know, if you're, we are two people in the ministry, and usually in the ministry, if you know anything, we can um, be maybe a little too long-winded. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so so this is the last question, and uh, is and the question is: Is Mormonism Christian? So, um, in short, no. Um, but let me explain. So, Mormonism holds beliefs that differ greatly from Christian doctrine. So, I know like. If you know a Mormon or if you know anything about Mormons, they kind of dress, uh, not physically dress, but they kind of like speak of Mormonism in Christian-like terms. They even use the Bible here and there. And, and so it feels and appears very Christian. But Christ, but Mormons really hold many differing beliefs than Christianity. So Mormonism was started by Joseph Smith, who claimed to talk to angels who chose him to restore essentially a new church because all the churches that existed were wrong. So if you ever hear that from a founder um, of Branch Off Christianity, they say, I'm starting a new church, this church that's so different than what Scripture says. Um, there, you need to question that greatly. Um, and I would even argue to say that that's not true. Um, Mormons uh, believe God the Father was once a man who became God, and as humans, we can also go through the process of being exalted to Godhood. So essentially, Mormons believe that human beings can become a God. Maybe not God himself, but they can become a God and, and kind of enter into the Godhood. Uh, Mormons believe Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, who was conceived in heaven by a celestial mother. Again, so this differs very greatly from Scripture that um, Jesus is very much God. Um, and, 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 and then the Trinity, Mormons do not believe in the oneness of God as a Trinity, but they believe in three separate gods. So that's also huge, hugely different from Christian doctrine, where Christian doctrine believes there's one God in three persons, um, that Jesus, God the Father, um, Jesus... Um, God's Son and the Holy Spirit are all God, three persons, but one God. Um, and then Mormons believe the Book of the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth, and it's the keystone of the religion. So, really, the religion, the keystone, of the religion, the anchoring block is the Book of Mormon more than Scripture is. And those are just a little tidbits of. Um, you might have seen Mormons riding around or or or, or explaining their faith and, and knocking on doors and stuff. And um, just maybe, and I would um, very strongly encourage you to do some research on that. 
um, go to gotquestions.org is a great place to go and and just um, typing that in and researching it and you'll learn more about the Mormon faith. So with that, I wrap it up and I thank you. We both thank everyone so much for listening. Again, if you've gotten this far, thank you so much for listening to us and we appreciate all who hear us and we hope that these podcasts are really strengthening and encouraging your faith. Just a reminder that we're having three services on Sunday, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. 10 o'clock is in service, and there's a video on the website to explain how that process will look. It's um, it's going to look a lot different coming to church in person, but um, we will be very happy to see you. And 11.30 is going to be streamed at the regular time. And, and again, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.